It's episode 35 of the FinTech Australia podcast, presented by Tier One People. The Finneys run by our partners, FinTech Australia, are back again in 2020. Sponsored by the Victorian government, Focus and BPay, the Finneys are our chance to celebrate the remarkable people, innovation and resilience the FinTech industry is known for and built upon. Be fast to register as entries close on the 16th of August. Go to thefinneys.org.au. Hello and welcome. I'm Dexter Cousins, and in today's show, we're joined by Stuart Grover, co-founder of Look Who's Charging. Welcome to the show, Stuart. Hi, Dexter. Yeah, thanks for having me. Mate, it's great to have you with us. Um, could you tell us and the, or the listeners a little bit more about Look Who's Charging? Yeah, Look Who's Charging is a, a business I guess I started on about five years ago to solve a very, very common problem, which is when people look on their bank statement, quite often they have no idea what charges are for. Um, you know, at the time it was sort of 2015. I thought, well, this is crazy. In 2015, you know, surely there's more data out there. Surely we shouldn't be presented with this cryptic mess on our statements that we've got to somehow figure out. And what happens generally over time is, you know, people forget about transactions. So even if you do recognize it today, there's a chance in a month or two you're going to forget what that transaction is. So really built Look Who's Charging to try and translate that, that obfuscated information into something that people can recognize, you know, information on who the merchant is, where they're located, what they sell, just any kind of information that will help them recall a transaction. So um, I, I understand that this was built out of a, a little bit of a kind of a frustration from yourself, being a small business owner, having to go through receipts and, and figuring out kind of where they came from. Um, what what was it that kind of, or, or what was the catalyst for you to decide that, hey, I've had enough, I'm just going to build this thing? <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, you're dead right. I mean, you know, one of the challenges I have, I've I've had a number of businesses since I was sort of 19, 20 years of age. I've always kind of ran businesses. And um, one of my businesses is particularly expense hungry. And I'm always out there. Uh, you know, people are out there buying stuff all the time, using corporate cards, you know, the cards I provide to them. And I sit there in front of zero on a Friday night, just figuring out where all this money's going. And, uh, you know, quite often I'm sending emails off to the guys that work for me, you know, Howard, what's this for? Chris, what's this for? And, you know, sometimes they recall, quite often they have no idea what it is. So with all my ideas, I guess what I've learned to do over the years is never kind of jump straight into it. I always sit on an idea for a year or so. Um, it was a frustrating problem for me. And over that year, it got more and more frustrating for me. And that's, I literally just started out of a spreadsheet, really, of just, you know, this is a random 40-character string, and here's a merchant. And then I kept on referring back to that spreadsheet. And over the year, the spreadsheet grew. And during that time, I spoke to friends as well. And um, I said, look, look, I can't be the only person that's having this problem, you know are you experiencing it in a way as well? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I called the bank the other day. I had this issue. My car's been cancelled, blah, blah, blah. So it's a very, very common problem. So as I said, I kind of sat on it for a year and then eventually I was like, okay, I'm going to throw myself at this one. I'm going to solve this problem. So how long did it take you to actually kind of get the, what is now look who's charging? Because <laughs> it's a pretty sophisticated piece of tech. It's not a not a spreadsheet. So how did you get from <laughs> spreadsheet to you know the the big all the big four banks being on board? 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, look, it, it isn't. You can't really solve the problem with a spreadsheet. I wish you could. Um, just to give you some numbers, there's about a million businesses in Australia that accept payments in one shape or form, you know, pay, uh, via PayPal or BPay or, you know, one of the providers via POS devices. And there's about 150 million ways they appear on bank statements. So that'd be a pretty big spreadsheet if you had to build that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Excel can handle that smell. Um, so you, look, you know, I'm a technologist. I'm a, I'm a developer. You know, I, I build technology-based businesses, keen interest in technology. So I really started out throwing, you know, all the, all the services that I could find at solving the problem. Um, you know, you'll hear all the buzzwords around machine learning and AI and things like that. And there is an element of that to the solution. But, you know, it, it's really a lot of code. You know, there's over sort of a million lines of code built into that solution now. Oh. And um, literally, you know, from 2015, really, when I started the business to June 2017, which is when I went live with NAB, who was our first customer, um, you know, it was head down coding um you know, bringing in developers, but really bootstrapping the business yeah. to a point I could go live with with my first client. So it's pretty remarkable um, the, the kind of rapid rate at which you got adoption from the big four banks. What what do you put that down to? Yeah, look, it's it's an easy problem to explain to people. The timing was perfect, and there's a strong business case there for it. So, you know, if you look at the issue. Um, there's about 14 to 15 million phone calls a year that call centers get in Australia with people going, what is this transaction? I mean, that's a staggering number. Yeah, you know, I, I, I almost did it the other week and blew my stack at some yeah. point. <laughs> Customer service person had been on the phone for about an hour on hold. And, that, and that's the thing. It's, it's such a frustrating experience for everybody. Uh, you know, the, the, call, the customer service person doesn't want to take the call. And some of the customer service people don't even have tools like Google to help solve the problem. Mm. Um, so, you know, it was a problem which uh, was very front of mind for them. It was a problem that they were asking uh, the schemes, Visa and MasterCard, to solve for them. And to date, they hadn't been able to solve that for them. Uh, and there's other reasons for that, and, and we probably won't go into them here. But, you know, there's 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 sort of vested interests in the status quo. And, um, yeah, you know, if you actually do the numbers, um, each call on average costs the bank about $82. So, you know, that's if the process, if it goes through like a, a dispute process end to end, it, you know, it's a big number. So you, you multiply 15 million calls by $82 and you've got a very, very big problem there mm. that the banks are keen to solve. Um, so, yeah, you know, it, I guess I went there with a solution to a problem which was very real for them. And, uh, you know, it's something that nobody else had really ever been able to solve for them. Um, you know, they've had people that will tell them, okay, you know, if it says Coles, it's probably a grocery store, but they've never had anybody uh, that's ever been able to give them full details on who the merchant is with the sole purpose. You know, the idea with this thing is that instead of the individual calling the bank and then rendering that, you know, $82 cost, um, it's uh, they're calling the merchant directly and resolving issues in the first instance directly with the merchant. Now you've um, had had more success as well last year, um, a, a big partnership that you you announced as well. What was that journey like of actually taking an idea, locking yourself away, building the solution, getting it in with the big four banks, which is a really tough thing to do, 
and then actually getting the you know the the exit uh, <laughs> as well. Yeah, I mean, from every release perspective, you know, all they the first they heard of us was actually when we went live with Nab in sort of uh, mid twenty seventeen, and then uh, you know we basically sold the business by uh, August twenty nineteen. So. A lot, of people, remarkable. <laughs> a lot of people have gone, this is crazy, right? You know, you but there was a couple of year journey up to 2017. We I kept it reasonably quiet for the first two years. We were actually looking originally at um partnering with one of the big schemes and and going live with them. And we, you know, we kind of had a few stumbling blocks with that process. So it was only really about April, probably you know, early 2017 when I kind of realized that that was going to be too slow and I'm better off just going directly to the banks. Um, so we only really started talking to NAB in about sort of January 2017 and we were live with them by June 2017, July 2017, I think it was. Um, so it's a really, really quick turnaround. So, um, you know, and then we had this kind of period of exclusivity with NAB where we had to lay low again and we couldn't talk to anybody until sort of mid-2018. Um so really nobody had heard of us by the time we then got our second customer on board, which was AANZ Bank. And, uh, uh, yeah, and then, you know, between sort of 2018, we carried on doing more work and, you know, carried on expanding. And, and we actually started going out there and talking to people about the solution and actually got a number of the other banks on board. And then, um, you know, we got to the end of sort of 2018 and we were going, this has got real momentum here. There's a great chance that we can take this business internationally. So, so what do you do, right? You know, we've got good cash flows. You know, we're a profitable business from day one. I mean, that's one of the beauties of selling to the big guys is you, you generally, you know, the contracts are large enough that you can actually afford to pay the bills and mm. afford to grow the, the, the solution. So we were profitable. Um, so we're going, okay, well, do we go out there and get investors and, and try and take this thing internationally? Um, or do we look to sell and, uh, and grow it in partnership with a, a company that already has an international presence? Um, we kind of explored both avenues and we decided to go down the sale route. Um, it wasn't a quick process, you know, from initial conversation to sell, actually selling the business was about nine months. Mm. Um, so, you know, and it was a, a lot of due diligence around that. You know, we didn't have a long track record with the solution. So obviously, you know, potential uh, buyers were kind of concerned that this was a bit of a flash in the pan or maybe there isn't. Uh, the long-term problem there to be solved. But once we kind of got uncomfortable that this isn't a problem that's going to go away anytime yeah. soon, um, you know, we finally got across the line with Experian and, and that was a year ago now. So we've we've been kind of part of Experian now for a year and um, that's a different, you know, change of gear in that their focus is, you know, they have a good presence in Australia, but they're very, very large in the US. They're very, very large in the UK. So straight away they're thinking internationalized. How do we take this thing internationally? Um, so that's you know that's something that we've been focused on now. Right. I, I want to talk for a few minutes, if if you're willing, Stuart, about how you actually bootstrapped, um, because it's a uh, it's an example that I, I use a lot with my clients around how you can actually get something out fast. Uh, you know, I'm not going to say cheaply, but certainly a hell of a lot cheaper than going and employing a load of developers here in Sydney. You're up on the central coast, so you've had to work remotely from starting the business. How did you go about getting the right tech talent and, and kind of scaling the business? Yeah, look, I mean, I've, I've benefited from kind of 15 years of building businesses from scratch. So, and, and I'm, I'm a developer myself, I'm a coder. You know, I, I do kind of wear both hats. I do sell as well as sort of build. 
But yeah, bootstrapping is is to me it, it, it's just about throwing yourself at a problem and immersing yourself in the problem. Um, there's resources there, so you know I had a, a bunch of Ukrainian devs initially. You know I've had really great success with hiring people in um, in Eastern Europe uh, to help. Very smart guys, mm. you know, ten fifteen US dollars an hour. You'll get yeah. a really really smart individual. Um, you're only paying for the time they expend on the project, so you're not having to wear these kind of ongoing salaries that you know we do now because we've kind of grown, but at the time mm. we just couldn't afford that. So between me and really sort of three or four developers, we we got this to a point that it was market ready, and um, you can do it. I mean, you know, most people out there probably aren't coders, um, yeah. maybe, but I think that I have a deep belief that. Um, Anybody can learn to code, um, you know, if you if you give yourself enough time and effort and, mm. and are interested in it enough. And just really understanding the basics of coding is generally enough to be able to have the conversation you need to have with these remote yeah. resources. So when you ask them to build, you know, a car, you don't get back a, you know, an aeroplane or, yeah. you know, which is a pretty common, you know, problem that I hear from people. They don't get back what they asked mm. for in the first place. Um, and also, you know, being a coder, you, you'd have this ability to take bits of code from different people who don't necessarily know each other, and you can pull that stuff together and turn it into a working solution um, without expending all the effort, effort and sort of energy of producing all those little bits of of this, the overall solution. Um, so yeah, I mean, bootstrapping to me is about uh, you know really getting your hands dirty, mm. getting in there making the most of whatever resources you have at your disposal. And to be honest, like when I first started building businesses 20 years ago, there was nothing like the support there is oh, now. Yeah. Um, you know, back I mean, then, even three years back, right? So. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Like, you know, when I started a business um, called Passport to Fitness, which became a really um, sort of good business, a really, you know, it's one of my first real success stories. And um, back then I had to pretend to be big. You know, I had to make out I was bigger, even though it was only really me and my keyboard. And yeah, and and uh, so it reminds me of it. Remember, only fools and horses, and it had done the <laughs> side of the van, London, Paris, like New York, yeah, yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. with Peckham. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, that that was how it was. Like people literally wouldn't talk to me unless, like, you know, they they thought I was somebody who had something big. But now it's kind of trendy to be small, almost. You know, we're nimble. We can change. We can pivot. We can, you know, listen to our clients and really uh, give them a solution they want. And you know, with all the other resources that are out there, both from government and also, you know, uh, Upwork and all these kind of freelancing services, any skills are out there and, mm. and easy to get. So, you know, I definitely recommend. Yeah. You know, don't go out there. I mean, to be honest, it's very, very hard to raise a lot of money unless you've got a working prototype or traction of some kind. But don't be afraid to go out there and start building and see what happens. Fantastic. Now, um, we touched on this earlier, Stuart. You're a, you're a bit of a serial entrepreneur, and I know that you've also got a, a 3D printing business. You've been doing some really cool stuff, particularly with with COVID. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, look, 3D printing is a fascinating technology to me. You know, it's there to solve a problem. I actually got involved with it a little bit too early. I mean, one of the great lessons of entrepreneurship is timing is very, very important. I got involved in 3D printing back in 2012 when the first hype really hit mm. true. You know, we were going to be 3D printing everything by 2020. Yeah. Fast forward, we're still not really 3D printing an awful lot. Um, I got involved with the 
with that because after I, I actually sold my passport to fitness business, I, I was kind of going, well, what's next? So I ended up going back to uni and doing a postgrad in space studies. And whilst I was at uni, um, I worked on a project which was about putting a 3D printer onto the space station. And the basic idea is I didn't know at the time anything about 3D printing, right? So I was completely new to this technology. And um, uh, the idea was if you're you know, stuck on a space station and you really need this part, you know, if you call down in Houston and, and try and get one sent up, you're going to be waiting six months for FedEx to turn up. It's a bit um, like living on the northern beaches. <laughs> yeah, yeah, at the moment it is, anyway. <laughs> so, you know, if you've got a 3D printer on a space station, whenever you need something, you can print it, and there it is. It's ready to go. And I was like, this is amazing technology. Australia is an island. We need this technology, right? We don't produce an awful lot in this country mm. anymore, unfortunately. And you actually look at the whole um, the whole end-to-end -end model of you know, we, we we buy stuff and that stuff has been on a shelf for a while and that was formerly in a warehouse. And before that, it was on a boat being shipped from China and before that, it was being produced. You know, it's very wasteful all the way through the process. An ideal paradigm when you buy something is, you know, you buy something that's very specific to your needs. It's customised for you. And at the point you buy it, we make it and it's ready and available mm. within a few hours. I mean, if we could shift our economy to that rather than this import mentality yeah. we've got right now... Um, we can, you know, completely change our reliance on third parties. Um, so, yeah, fast forward eight years to where we are now. So I've got this great business, 3D Printing Studios. It hasn't gone gangbusters like we originally hoped it would, but it's now with COVID actually becoming more and more relevant. Yeah. Um, previously, we were competing against offshoring. You know, everybody yeah. wanted to offshore their production because it was cheaper. But now, you know, people want to guarantee supply. So they want to know that if they order something, they're going to get it. We can guarantee that with a 3D printer because a 3D printer, one minute can be printing, you know, PPE for COVID or, um, uh, or it can be printing an architectural model for an architect, you know, so they can do a DA application or it can be printing a medical device. You know, it's so versatile. Mm. It can produce whatever anybody needs. So when COVID hit in March, um, we were originally contacted by the Department of Science and, we, you know, there's a worldwide shortage of swabs for testing. Mm. And um, so the swabs currently are manufactured in, um, in Italy and in the USA, two of the hardest hit countries in the world. So all their manufacturing is going into producing for their own local demand, their own domestic demand. And that's left Australia, you know, dangerously short of test kits for COVID. So... What you know, a 3D printer can produce a test for COVID. So we've gone from, you know, initially just um, not knowing anything about COVID testing. We're now experts in it four or five months on. And we're actually started supplying a state pathologist now with COVID test kits oh, wow. that are 3D printed in Australia. So the idea is, you know, if New South Wales come to us and they say, you know, we need 80,000 kits next week, we can print 80,000 kits. Uh, and give it to them next week. Whereas at the moment, you know, previously they would have had to kind of beg, beg, borrow and steal these kits from whoever's got them available. So uh, ironically, one of my questions for you was if you were starting a brand new business today, what would it be <laughs> other than face masks and hand sanitizer? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it looks like you've gone with swabs instead. Yeah, swabs, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, because it was that immediate need and like a lot of people are doing the face masks and 3D printing them and they can be printed at home. We have these kind of million-dollar pieces of equipment, and they, they're the kind of things that are required for these swabs and these yeah. test kits. Uh, plus, we need all the TGA certification and things. So mm. people can't print this stuff at home. So that's what we're focused on right now. Fantastic. Mm. So a couple of things before we, we kind of wrap up, Stuart. 
I guess other than your your own businesses, you know, which, which fintech have got you excited right now? Yeah, there's there's a lot going on. I mean, um, there's there's a couple of interesting areas. That, you know, there are areas that I've actually considered moving into myself, but other people have almost stole the march on it. They're do it. They're doing it. So one is around loyalty. Um, so I, I'm a firm believer that you know we need to change the way we buy stuff. I've kind of talked about it with 3D printing, but also the kind of merchants that we buy from as well. And there's a couple of businesses who are looking to use um, kind of loyalty as a, as a way of kind of getting people to buy from certain providers. Mm. Um, so there's, uh, I think, Plastique and Cash Rewards yeah. and a few of these fintechs that are starting up um, offering, you know, cashbacks as an incentive. And, you know, for me, that's a massive opportunity because as a merchant, you know, I spend X dollars a month with Facebook ads and Google ads, and I'm basically paying for impressions or yeah. clicks. They're not real customers. But with this kind of cash rewards or rewards to actual customers who buy from you, you're only really paying when you get paying customers come mm. back to you. And to me, that is a massive opportunity to upset what, you know, the, the monopoly that the Google AdWords have yeah. and the monopoly that Facebook have on ads. And, you know, you actually go from this is an incredible story, you know, from way back when, when it was just you were paying for column inches in the newspapers mm. to then with Google where you're paying for impressions and clicks. You know, this 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 option around cashback rewards has the opportunity to take us to that next step where you're only really paying for paying customers. Yeah. Um, so incredible opportunity of that. And then the other side of that as well is, you know, using the data like we can provide to actually steer people to make better decisions when they purchase around environmental sustainability. So there's a couple of companies um, that are looking to, you know, basically score you. You know, when you make a purchase, is a company you're purchasing from sustainable are they mm. you know are they looking after their workers are they you know doing the right thing by the environment and as a consumer you know you don't currently have that information yeah. right you, you know you, you can research it but how many people do that stuff right so these companies that are offering these fintechs that are offering these kind of um insights into your spend i think that's really exciting mm. stuff brilliant well Stuart, um just a couple of things before we kind of you know i guess wrap up the show uh you've been uh, I, I guess it, you know, involved in fintech from its early days. Seems like we're at a bit of a, um, and I, I remember having this discussion with yourself and Dave, uh, you know, a year and a half back before the the Experian, which the days of building the kind of feature app seem to be behind us now, and it's now this as, you, as you've talked about this kind of exciting period that we're coming into. But what what's your overall view of where kind of fintech in Australia is at when you? You know, you, you kind of look at it on a global scale. Yeah, look, I, I think Australians have done, you know, fantastically well. You know, any great idea I see from overseas, you can guarantee there's an Australian who started yeah. that same idea a year earlier or two yeah. years earlier. I, I remember Cybos 2018. Yeah. And, you know, people around the world were going nuts for what you were doing with Look Who's Charging. Yeah. Ironically, you were in Vegas at the time. At the time, yeah. <laughs> Money 2020. <laughs> I mean, and that was a great lesson to us. Like Dave and I kind of spent a couple of weeks in the US talking to the banks over there. And we don't do it enough as Aussies. Mm. Like, we were one of only three or four companies that were represented at the biggest fintech show in the world, right? There's thousands of customers at this bank, at this show, and there's only four or five Aussie fintechs there. I reckon, you know, there's so much opportunity. We need to get out there and and talk to the rest of the world and show off some of the great stuff we're doing. 
I don't think we do that enough right now. But, you know, that is, you know, if, if the world could see some of the stuff that we're doing and, and we're miles ahead, you know, like mm-hmm. some of the innovations we saw at Money yeah. 2020 was like, you know, this is the greatest innovation in check payments. It's like, what checks for like 10, <laughs> 15 years? Nobody uses checks in yeah. Australia. So, you know, I think, you know, fintechs, Australian fintechs shouldn't be shy. They should be just yeah. getting out there and talking. I remember Dave sharing with me a story where you went to Apple HQ in Silicon Valley <laughs> and he went to pay for a coffee at the coffee shop downstairs using Apple Pay and they wouldn't take it and you have to pay cash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was, it was funny. It wasn't available anywhere. Yeah. You know, it, there was no The hotbed of innovation. I know, yeah. And, you, you know, you see why Apple have got such traction here, more traction here than they've probably got overseas, just because we as Australians are generally early adopters when it comes to this technology. And like I said, we've got solutions out there. We just need to get them out to the rest of the world. Brilliant. Well, Stuart, it's been fantastic to have you on the show. Um, where can people go to find out more about Look Who's Charging? Yeah, so um, lookwhoscharging.com. Just uh, there's plenty of support and information on the website. And uh, yeah, just reach out if you want to talk about the solution. Brilliant. Well, that wraps up today's show. Thanks so much for joining me. You can find out more about me at Dexter Cousins on Twitter and Dexter Cousins on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. And if you like today's show, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps so that I can bring great guests like Stuart onto the show. This show is produced by Tier 1 People, leaders in fintech executive search. We'll help you launch, scale, and innovate by delivering the right people. You can reach us at info at tier1people.com. Until the next episode, stay safe.